My name's Brad. If we haven't had opportunity to meet, I want to welcome you here. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, uh, in addition to our staff, Mike, who looks after uh, student ministries, and Ruth Ellen, who's on holidays this weekend in California with her family, and Tammy, who's over at uh, the Welcome Center, and Keith, who is the associate pastor who's up with the men at a retreat this morning. Well, a few months ago, Meg and I were watching a documentary on CBC's Doc Zone. These are words that I never would have said in my 20s. Documentary and CBC. Uh, But, even in my early 30s, maybe. But, uh, it was a documentary entitled, The Trouble with Experts. Did anybody see this one? The Trouble with Experts? All right, Walter saw it. Okay. So, uh, they did a masterful job in this documentary of talking about how we, we have this tendency in our culture and in our lives to inherently trust people that claim that they are experts. And we think that because maybe they have a special skill set and maybe they have a little bit more experience in something than we do, that they can predict the future with a greater degree of accuracy than the rest of us. And the documentary unpackaged a 20-year study of experts in the areas of people who make a living predicting things. So like political pundits saying, we think this election is going to go this way. We all know how that worked out for them this last one in BC, right? So uh, political pundits, economic and uh, social experts and the like. And they demonstrated that over the course of 20 years, and over 3,000 predictions, the experts got it right less than half the time. Then what was more troubling, maybe, was the unnerving truth that the more famous that a forecaster was, or the more bold their forecast was, the more likely they were to get it wrong. Now, granted, it's difficult to forecast the future, so we can't hold them fully responsible for their behavior, no matter who you are. But oftentimes, we, in our culture, we've, we think that the experts ought to know better. They ought to know, because this is what we are paid the big bucks for. And so we place our confidence in their opinions. Here's a few of my favorite quotes from a book called The Experts Speak. The Definitive Compendium of Authoritative Misinformation. How's that for a subtitle? So a few just kind of quotes pulled out of this for experts. 1929. Stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Irving Fisher, professor of economics at Yale University in October 17th, 1929. Next one. Forget it, Lewis, no Civil War picture ever made a nickel. Irving Thalbert gave that warning to Lewis Mayer regarding Gone with the Wind. You don't make any money on any Civil War picture. Next one, this is one of my favorite ones. We don't like their sound. Groups of guitars are on their way out, said a DECA recording company executive turning down the Beatles in 1962. (laughs) In 1968, Business Week ran a story saying, with over 50 foreign cars already on sale here, we do not believe the Japanese auto industry is likely to carve out a big share of the market for itself. And in 1977, the president of the Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, said this, there is no reason for any individual to have a computer in their home. (laughs) 
epic fail in terms of a prediction for the future. You know, predicting the future is notoriously slippery, isn't it? And it's kind of funny to laugh at these people and think, oh, how ridiculously wrong they were. For some of us, when we think about the future, we can become paralyzed with worry and fear and anxiety, and we just get stuck. Last month, we asked you on a Sunday morning and on Facebook and on Twitter to say this question, in what area of your life do you feel stuck in some way? You just don't have any traction. And we had lots of poignant answers and some really good questions. One of the areas that came up over and over and over again across a whole spectrum of responses was this question about the future and about fear of what might happen in the future. A sense of of not necessarily wanting to or feeling confident to take action in an area of your life because you might lose control or not be prepared for the future. Which makes sense in a lot of ways because we love security in almost any area of our life that we can get it and certainty. That's the entire platform that all of suburbia is built upon in some ways. But if there's one category where our predictive models fail us and certainty eludes us and fear has the potential to grip us, it's when we think about the future. The unknown and the unknowable has a way of creating this discomfort and this sense of disequilibrium in our souls. And if we think too long and too hard about it, it can rob us of any meaningful sense of peace. And at times, it can feel so significant, and in seasons of some of our lives that maybe some of you find yourselves in right now, it can threaten to overwhelm us if we let it. In the Old Testament, in the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes, the Bible just lays it out plain and simple, black and white. Ecclesiastes ten fourteen says, listen, no one really knows what's going to happen. No one can predict the future. It doesn't stop the experts from trying. It doesn't stop us from worrying about it sometimes. And just a few pages over from that in, in Ecclesiastes, in another book of the Old Testament, is the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is a man who lived about 600 years before Jesus and is generally known as the weeping prophet because he didn't have a lot of very happy things to say, particularly about the future and what was going to happen to the people of Israel in their future. And this was because in his day, the people of Israel had walked so far away from God and had become so disobedient over such a consistent area of their nation and their lives as individuals over such a long period of time that God was ready to judge them. And people's rampant disobedience of what God had asked them to do had resulted in the book of Jeremiah reading almost as a whole critique of disobedience and these so-called experts. Because in Jeremiah's day, the experts were running around saying, peace and safety, don't worry about things, you'll be fine. God's not going to get upset with the fact that you've just totally walked away from Don't worry about it in any way. When, in fact, God had promised consequences for their actions. 
And so this is why it comes as a bit of a surprise to me when I hear the book of Jeremiah being used and quoted by people in our day and time around conversations about the future. And they glibly say and go to Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and say, you know, talking to somebody who, a friend of theirs, say, you know, friend, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 just says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And so they say to their friend, friend, just don't worry. You just need to believe this verse. Magic Jesus wants to come into your life and make it all right. Make it all better. The trajectory of your life will be up and to the right. Don't worry about it. You know, that's what the Bible says. And to me, when I hear that kind of conversation, I think that sounds a lot more like uh, North American TV preachers and North American TV infomercials as opposed to a good, careful reading of the book of Jeremiah. In North America, we love to talk about prosper, hope, future, say them again and again and again, name it, claim it, you'll get unstuck. And without negating the confidence and faith that God calls us to and obedience in our areas of our lives, I'm going to suggest today that if you go around quoting Jeremiah 29, 11 like that, you need to stop because that's not what Jeremiah 29, 11 is about. It's not intended to be used as kind of a spiritual pick-me-up to people who have allowed North American culture to set the interpretive lens that we look at the Bible with, as opposed to letting the Bible speak for itself. Let me show you what I mean, because in Jeremiah 29, 11, if we read anything around Jeremiah 29, 11, you'd get a much clearer sense of what's going on and what Jeremiah 29, 11 is actually saying, not only to its original hearers, but to us today as well. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah chapter 29, or go there on your phone. Uh, you can download the app, uversion.com. Then you'll always have uh, the Bible with you. You'll notice in your info sheet this morning, we put in a new bookmark for our reading plan, Project 345. And so that kicks off uh, today. If you want to jump in with us, we would love you to get started with that. You can just download that reading plan right on your phone and keep going. It's a lot of fun. Three minutes and 45 seconds, five days a week, you can read through uh, a passage in the New Testament with everybody here at Jericho and have a lot of fun with it. So uh, look at Jeremiah chapter 29. Let me set a little context for us as we dig in. So you go through the Old Testament, the story of a particular family, a particular group of people starts to take shape. The lens of the biblical story, as you go through the Old Testament, focuses on the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, and how God is working with them as a people through history, and what their lives begin to unfold life, and what God begins to uh, give to them. So uh, they live in and around modern-day Israel and Jerusalem, After a while, we begin to see that like any family, they have some obedience issues. So despite God's repeated intervention in their lives and in their history, and his invitation to worship him and put their trust in him, they choose continuously, just like we do, to put their faith and confidence in things other than God. They get influenced by their culture. They get influenced by Uh, the idolatry of the nations around them. And so God warns them about the dangers of this course of action over and over and over again. But they consistently refuse to listen. Jared, our nine-year-old, and I are are going through the Bible together in a year in an easy-to-understand version for him called Day by Day. And 
you know, we're getting into this section of it, and we're reading it, and he's now beginning to actually kind of do a decent job of predicting. I'll read, you know, so-and-so became king, and he's like, they're not going to be a good king, are they, Dad? Like, mm, probably not. Yeah, there's not very many of them at this time. We're not getting very many good kings these days, are we, he says. So, so you know, this was a time and a season in Israel's history where this was descriptive for them, that things were really not going as um, according to a plan that God would have invited and laid out for them. So eventually, God allows the nation of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar to invade their land, and he carries off most of the people into captivity. So they're dragged all the way from their homeland, all the way across the desert uh, to another uh, kingdom and displaced in exile there in the kingdom of Babylon. And so sometime after this happens, sometime after 597 B.C., the prophet Jeremiah writes a letter to these individuals in exile who've been carried off into captivity. And this is what he says in Jeremiah 29, verse 1 to 14. We have a copy of his letter. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The text will come up on the side screens when we get to verse 10. So Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, and prophets and all the people who'd been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiakim, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, all the craftsmen and artisans had all been deported from Jerusalem. And he sent the letter with Elsha, the son of Shaphim, and Gamariah, Hilkiah, or however you want to pronounce those names. When they went to Babylon, King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what Jeremiah's letter said. Verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all of the captives he's exiled from Babylon to Jerusalem. Build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry, have children, find spouses for them so that you have many grandchildren, multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Pray for its welfare, for its welfare will determine your welfare. It's one of the reasons we partner with groups in our city here, because we want to be a part of working for the peace and prosperity of our city. Verse 8, this is what the Lord of Hammond's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams. They are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you hope, a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. The people of Israel in exile were stuck. And they were stuck because they didn't know what the future would hold. And they had some conflicting information that was being presented to them about what the future would hold. Would they go home tomorrow, two years from now? Would they live out the rest of their natural lives in Babylon? So they weren't even sure 
if they should bother planting a garden in the spring because they didn't know if they were going to be around to enjoy the fruits of their labor in the fall. And as you can imagine, it's tough to live like that with that level of uncertainty. And so they were confused. And what made it even more tricky was if you look in chapter 8, we see there were people running around and telling them that they claimed that they were speaking on God's behalf and saying to these exiles, God says in two years you'll be home again. Happy as can be. Just, you know, happy times. It'll all be good. And this was causing the exiles to live with a very short-term horizon in their lives and a very inward focus. And God sees that they're stuck, they're confused, and he graciously sends a message to them through the prophet Jeremiah. And in verse 10, he says to them and reminds them of something that the prophet Daniel said before they went into captivity. He says, listen, God told you you're going to be there for 70 years in Babylon. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I've promised. I will bring you home again and end your captivity, verse 14, and I will bring you home again to your own land. So God gives them, in his grace and wisdom, a different horizon to work off of. For those of you who are parents, you might be able to identify with this. God's basically saying to them, listen, you have misbehaved. This is a 70-year time out. You need to sit over there until you get it through your head that what you have done is wrong and there are consequences for your action." So stick with this image of a timeout for a minute. Imagine, parents, you've given your child a timeout, and another person in the house comes over and says to the kid who's in a corner, you know what? I know mom and dad says you have to be over here in the corner or on the stairs or wherever you do timeout for X number of minutes. But why don't we just kind of shorten that? I mean, you know, what do they know anyways, right? Just let's just leave now. Let's just get rid of this timeout business. You know, back to what we were doing in the first place. You wouldn't stand for it as a parent, would you? Because you have a purpose in this period of discipline that would be thwarted by someone's glib and underhanded attempt to undermine your purposes and cut things short. And God feels the same way about what's happening to these exiles and these people. He knows that as a people, they have a lesson or lessons that he wants them to learn. And he needs them to wrestle with that fact of their disobedience. And in a sense, part of the lesson that God needs to speak into their lives, and maybe your life today, is he needs them to trust him again for their future. You see, they'd been quite busy in setting up all kinds of other arrangements for their own defense and protection when God had said, trust me. And they said, "Ah, I don't know if it's... I don't know if we can. Let's see if we can maybe hire Egypt to help protect us. Maybe we can make some arrangements with some other nations. They can help protect us. God said, trust me. And so God needed to remind them to trust in him for the future. God knows, just like you know as a parent, this type of lesson doesn't sink in overnight. This is going to take some time for them to learn. They're going to need the 70 years to figure this out. And so Jeremiah's letter is written to remind them not to give up hope in that period of time. 
God says to them in this period of discipline, in this period of waiting, in this period of 70 years that suck away from home, away from everything that they know, and away and torn apart from their families and from all these things, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And this is part of those plans. Those plans for you that involve this season of your life are plans for your good and not for disaster. They are plans that will give you a hope and a future. But notice how God's vision of their preferred future is not coming tomorrow. That's why I think so many well-meaning people misquote or misuse this verse. They mean it as a kind of quick pick-me-up, fix it, bless me, Jesus, get me out of this pickle, and it's a nice little soundbite for people that are going through hard times. But when Jeremiah writes this letter and writes these words to the exiles, he's intending to communicate people at least three things and three lessons that I think are applicable for us in our lives today when we think about the future. The first lesson that we learn about the future, both here and all through the scriptures, is that the future is fully known by and fully belongs to our sovereign God. Nothing catches God unaware or off guard, or by surprise. The reality of your life doesn't. The reality that these people would be in exile for 70 years, but after that they would return, was already known by God. That's why only God can say in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 9, listen, I know the future. I will actually tell you about the future before it happens. In Psalm 139, verse 16, God says, every day of your life was recorded in his book before it came to be. Every moment of your life was laid out before it even began. The words that we sang of that song are taken right from Psalm 139. Every moment of your experience and your existence was known to God before a single day of it has passed. 1 Corinthians 3.22 says, Life, death, the present, the future, all of it belongs to God. This moment, every moment of your life and circumstances, your birth and all of our eventual deaths, the details of your life, your past, your present, your future, they are all known by God. Your future is not mysterious to him. I like the phrase in the song already there by Matthew West, Casting Crowns. Uh, The song uh, is called Already There, and the chorus says, just in part, uh, to God, my future is a memory because he's already there. God knows what's going on in your life, in your circumstance, in your home, in your family, in your business affairs, in your school, wherever you hang out. God knows what's going on because he's already there. And so some of us need to remind ourselves again 
that we might not know the future, but we are in relationship with someone who does know the future. God is fully aware of everything that will transpire in our lives and future. And so because of this, we learn our second lesson about the future. And that is because you and I may not know the future, but I know God knows my future. You and I can live with confident hope, even in the midst of uncertainty about the future or about our present circumstances. Circumstances don't have the final say as to how you and I think about the future because everything about the future belongs to God. We don't need to get fearful when experts come into the news nightly with dire predictions. We don't need to throw up our hands in complete abandon when bad news comes into our lives. I love the way this is pictured for us in the book of Proverbs. It describes a woman with confidence in God, and it says she's clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. Or literally, she laughs at the future. Not in a glib or dismissive way, but in a way that says, you know what? I know that the future is fully known by God who loves me, and even if it takes 70 years or more to work this thing out, I will trust in him. Therefore, I can laugh without fear of the future. It doesn't say laughing about the circumstances of your life if they're hard or painful, but when it comes to fear, gripping our hearts about the future. And this morning, I want you to meet two of the women of Jericho who are living this out in profound ways. One of them can't be here with us in this season of life because she's undergoing chemotherapy treatment for cancer. So her immune system is compromised and public places of any kind where germs can spread are not great places for her to hang out. So she's lying low, she's staying home, you know, staying regularly engaged, listening online and being a part of receiving personal visits and email. And some of you will know uh, Herta Thiessen. And so this past week we got an email from Herta Uh, with the uh, subject heading, Chemo Update update Number 5. And she sent a few of these out. And this is a picture of her uh, sitting there and undergoing her treatment. And what struck me about Chemo Update Number 5 was as she closed off, she, she finished her letter saying this, quoting Psalm 31, 14 and 15. She said, as I sit there in my chair, I think about this verse and I say, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My future is in your hands. Some people might look at that and look at Herda and say, Herda, how in the world can you sit in a cancer clinic and say, I trust in you, God. My future is in your hands with that kind of confidence. Well, Herta would say it's because her confidence and her joy and her future is rooted in something much deeper than the circumstances of her experiences. It's rooted in an ultimate sense, not in the efficacy of her treatment plan. It's rooted in something more eternal. Her hope and her confidence and her joy is rooted in God alone and her trust that God holds her future in his hands regardless of the medical outcomes 
of her treatment. She sent me a quote this morning. I asked if I could put her picture up. I asked her if I could, could uh, talk with her and, and, uh, about that verse and let you guys know how she's doing in that. And her quote that she uh, sent me this morning, Pete, can you put that up for me? It's her quote about joy. And she says this, Joy, in my circumstance, is the settled assurance that God is in control of all of the details of my life. It's a quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice that I have to praise God in all things. It's a quote by uh, Kay Warren, uh, Rick Warren's life, and she's a speaker and an author. And Herta says, that's what I cling to in this season of my life for joy because the future has elements of uncertainty to it that I just don't know. But I do know that I have confidence and faith in Jesus and in his work in my life, and ultimately, I know where my destiny lies. And friends, if you're here today and you're a person of faith and you have trusted Jesus for your future, you have put your settled confidence and trust in him alone for your eternity and said, I trust in Jesus I confess, the scripture says, with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Then, friends, this too is your assurance that ultimately, no matter what comes into your life circumstantially, that your joy and your eternity is rooted and settled in Jesus. And that ultimately, you will spend the eternity with him in joy and in confidence because of your trust in him. Maybe you're here today, friend, and you don't have that sense of confidence about your future and your eternal destiny. I don't want you to leave here today without talking to us about that. Come and talk to the prayer team. Come and talk to myself. Pray with us about that. We would love to walk you through that process and that journey of saying, you know what, I want that sense of settled trust and confidence that I could look as a Christian, as a person of faith, in the face of death and say, you know what, beyond that and my circumstances, I have hope for the future. So come and talk to us today. I would encourage you. I want that for you. I desire that for you in your life. And we've been praying and would desire that for you as well. Maybe today's the day that you want to make that choice and you need to make that choice. Maybe you've never considered in, in any ultimate sense where your ultimate hope and future confidence is rooted in. Herta's hope and encouragement to you is say, my hope is built on an eternal and secure foundation, a living and vitalized relationship with Jesus. I want you to meet another one of the women of Jericho this morning who is also living this out, this kind of trust and confidence in God in the midst of everyday life, in the midst of unsettled existence. So I'm going to bring the mic over to Cheryl. And Cheryl's going to share her story. Next weekend, Cheryl's being baptized down at uh, Derby Reach. But we thought, you know what? The water is really cold. And if Cheryl and I stand there the whole time and, you know, she shares her story there, we'll, we'll probably freeze to death. So we thought it might be a little more comfortable for you here to stand kind of in a, you know, nice warm room and be able to kind of share your story with everybody. So uh, some of you might not know Cheryl really well, but Cheryl, this is your opportunity to kind of let us in on what God is doing in your life and has done in your life and uh, encourage us with that. So, okay. You've got some support staff here with you. 
And we're going to stick your hand up if you're here to support and encourage Cheryl. I mean, all of you are, but specifically, there are some people who've got invites and emails about this today. So, all right, Cheryl, go ahead. Um, Although I grew up in a Christian home and had asked God into my heart as a preschooler, God often felt absent during my growing up years. My dad was extremely abusive to the extent that my mom and I had to leave him when I was just a few years old. Despite moving to another province, my dad followed us and harassed us, requiring police presence more than once. Even a restraining order and my mom remarrying did not stop him. One of the most traumatic memories I have from my childhood was watching my dad beat up my stepdad. My stepdad was not abusive, but he never hugged me or told me he loved me, and so he never felt like a father. When I was about seven, my stepdad told me that my dad was not actually my dad. He told me that I had been conceived through artificial insemination, since the man I thought was my father could not have children. My stepdad seemed to enjoy imparting this truth to me. I thought my dad was evil, but was not knowing who and where I came from any better. As one might expect, my relationship with God suffered. I still went to church, Sunday school, and girls club, but I rarely prayed, and when I did, it was usually concerning one thing. God, please send me a dad. Without ever having experienced the love of an earthly father, I can't say I really understood the concept of a heavenly father. I knew God existed and that he sent his son to die for my sins, which obviously meant he loved me, but I guess he just did it from a distance. Then one day, about six years ago, my stepdad walked out on our family without so much as a goodbye. Although he never felt like a father, this still felt like another rejection. I had always been somewhat of an anxious person, but it was at this point that my depression and anxiety problems really intensified. When combined with a difficult situation at work a few years ago, it became more than I could handle. Some of the symptoms included being easily startled, heart palpitations, and sleep disorder. In addition to the anxiety symptoms, I felt depressed as well. Days were extremely long and hard to get through. I had to talk myself into doing the smallest tasks. At this point, I wasn't very invested in my relationship with God. When I prayed, it was for quick fixes. I wanted God to snap his fingers and take away my feelings of depression and anxiety. I was like Elijah, expecting God to appear to me in the big ways, but God never did. Instead, I think he has been the gentle whisper that has kept me from giving up. He has helped me find good medication and counseling for my anxiety and depression, and he has blessed me with a great church community, friends, and a husband that I know will make a great father to our children one day. So today I'm saying that I don't need God to be in the fire, the earthquake, or the storm. I accept that sometimes he is the whisper in the wind and may even be completely inaudible at times. I have a knowing in my heart that he lives, and so I step forward in obedience next Sunday to be baptized. I intend to press on in my relationship with God and continue to work on understanding his unfailing love for me. Let's thank Cheryl for sharing that with us. Uh, Cheryl, we appreciate that. That takes courage to let us into parts of your life that are, um, yeah, that are painful and have been painful for you. Thank you for doing that. I love that phrase at the end of your story where you say, so despite all of these things, I choose to step forward in obedience. 
I intend to press on, she said, in my relationship with God, to continue to work on understanding his love for me. That's powerful. That choice is powerful. I think that's the heart of Jeremiah 29, 11. And our third lesson that we see about dealing with fear of the future and anxiety in our lives. The third lesson about the future from this text is that God invites you and I into obedient engagement and meaningful choices. The first two lessons talk about a sense and speak to the question of peace about the future. If I believe the future is fully known by a God who knows me and loves me, then I can live with confidence and hope even in the midst of uncertainty so I can keep calm. But this next part here, we don't just throw up our hands in sort of fatalistic ways and say, oh, well, I guess God knows the future, so I'll just sit around and wait for him to work it all out. God invites each of us to seek after him. And look and find Jeremiah 29, 13 says, If you look for me, God says, with wholeheartedly, you will find me. Jeremiah 29, 7, God says, Work at it. Work for the peace and prosperity of this city. Pray, yes, great. But also roll up your sleeves, dig in. Keep calm, for sure, but also carry on. This keep calm and carry on sign, which is around everywhere these days and all kinds of funny different parodies of it, the sign was originally designed in 1939 by the Ministry of Information in the UK to keep people from growing fearful and paralyzed during the Second World War because they knew and had information that widespread bombing of major cities was imminent. And so they needed to, something to communicate to people about this notion that they both needed to have a settled sense of safety, that yes, things were being dealt with and attended to, but they also needed to engage in meaningful plans for their future, not just sit around and wait for who knows how long this thing would drag itself on. And so they came up with the phrase, keep calm and carry on. I think it's a good sign for us, a good, a good thing to cement in our memory, both aspects of what God wants to remind us about today. I want you to grab your info sheet and pull out the insert that's in there. One side of it says, reflect and confess, and the other side says, affirm and act. And so I don't know which element you want to kind of focus on. I'm going to leave that to you to kind of press into a little bit today. On the reflect and confess side, the phrase that I want you to wrestle with and pray about and spend time reflecting on as we prepare to respond in worship and song is, Jesus, I am fearful about the following elements of my future. I want you to spend some time thinking about that and just listing them out, just saying what specific elements of your future or of your life are you fearful about? Write it down. Put it on paper. You don't have to sign it. You don't have to sort of show it to everybody if you don't want to, but we do have two response boards at the back. The one is a reflect and confess uh, response board. And so I'd encourage you, write it down, and then as an act of confession, as an act of declaration, take it to the back, and there's tape there, and just stick it up on there and say, I confess that this is something that I wrestle with, but God, I need your help 
I need you to help me in this place of fear that I'm wrestling with. So that's a reflect and confess. And then the affirm and act. And you may want to do both. They may be inextricably linked for you in some way. Maybe you're gripped with fear and you need to speak that out to God or to a trusted individual or friend. Maybe you need to draw it out. Maybe there's a picture in your mind of something about the future that is gripping you with fear. And maybe the second part for you is going to be more important, that affirming and acting. You may not be able to think, I don't know if it's gripping me with fear, but I do want to say, God, I do trust you today. So fill in that blank. God, I want to declare my trust in you by, and then what action are you going to take? Maybe for you, an act of giving something away, resources, finances, whatever it is, is a declaration of trust that you've not done before. Maybe taking a greater step of risk outside of your comfort zone, talking to people or allowing yourself to go forward for prayer ministry in a few minutes is a risk for you. But you want to say, I'm going to declare my trust in you, God, by stepping further out of my comfort zone than I have to date. Kevin and the team are going to come and they're going to play and lead us in songs of response. And these songs of response invite us to reaffirm, reaffirm again our confidence and our trust in God. One of the choruses of the songs says it this way, In you I trust, in you I rest. And it invites us to get to a place in our soul where we are settled and confident in who God is.